0: everybody welcome to conversation peace with patrick armstrong i am the titular patrick and this is the show where we talk about the missing pieces of the conversations we are already having shout out to our returning listeners and a high five and hello to everyone joining us for the very first time thank you so much it means so much to us here at the show my guest today is a fellow korean adoptee and a recovering nonprofit executive Her experiences as an immigrant, foster child, person of color in a very white community, and also her very difficult experiences as an adoptee influenced her narrative of self-rejection of her Asian identity. She was in constant pursuit of finding white belonging for over 25 years and never achieved it. She never found real belonging anywhere until now. It is an honor and my privilege to welcome Grace Foster to the show. Hey, Grace, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Hi, Patrick. Thanks for having me.
0: You are very welcome. Um, I didn't tell you how I was gonna. I was going to describe you as a recovering nonprofit executive. Is that okay?
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah.
0: Okay, perfect. I can definitely cut that <laughs> as well and run a new intro. But um, I just from our last conversation, um, I was like, you know what? She's 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 out of it now. And she's working her way back into some new stuff. And we're going to get into that today. Uh, Grace, I obviously gave you just a very short introduction here. But for anybody who's listening who may not know you specifically, um, do you mind sharing a little bit more about yourself?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, you said it well. Uh, I'm a Korean adoptee, also a former foster youth. Um, I, I share those two identities. And uh, grew up in the Midwest, uh, adopted into um, a family with white parents, but we actually had a lot of multiracial um, uh, kids in our family that were all adopted. Um, And we were a family of nearly 20 kids, so it was very big. And like you said, searched for belonging in this white community white home and for decades never understood fully why I was never able to achieve a sense of home, of belonging, Uh, always knew I was different. So um, I hear you and your guests talk a lot about that apocalypse moment coming out Mm -hmm. of the fog. I always had a sense of it. Um, And, you know, I think Throughout the years, I've tackled it piece by piece. It's been a slow, long journey, but definitely 2020 was a big, pivotal moment for me, as well as many in our community. Mm -hmm. Uh, White people were finally listening. They were (laughs) truly listening to conversations around race and the many different facets and aspects around what that means for multi-communities, not just the Black community. Um, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful that that year, as terrible as it was, happened uh, because it really forced me to dig a little deeper and really question if I am not feeling like I belong if I'm not seeing representation of my story as an adoptee, former foster youth an Asian American, what am I doing?
2: Mm.
1: Why am I here then? So, you know, it really forced me to reckon with my piece and my part in this narrative, in changing the narrative, in helping create more belonging for our communities. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to talk to you today a little bit more about what's come of that uh, since my, my big moment in 2020 of realizing that I needed to roll up my sleeves and participate.
0: Absolutely. I really appreciate you sharing that. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of us adoptees specifically, but a lot of people just in general, like you said, you know, 2020 was that awakening moment. A lot of us are actually having the conversation whether or not we were talking about it before we are starting to learn how to articulate and voice some of those things that we're feeling and like you said too a lot of people a lot of white folks specifically seemed at least at the start willing and able to start listening to it and participating in those conversations and you know I think that kind of ebbs and flows and I think we're in that ebb and flow period right now but I also think that we've not ever been at a stronger point in terms of the amount of people specifically in our community, this time specifically coming out, using their voices and demanding to be heard. Not just like, Hey, I'm here. Look over here if you want, but more like, Hey, we need you to see us and validate us. So that way we can actually move forward in the direction that we want to go. So, um, for the audience listening, Grace and I connected via LinkedIn, I believe was the first place. And, um, we once we had our first zoom call like it was it was a wrap after that i knew i'd found a kindred spirit in terms of what it is um that i want to do in the community but also what kind of conversations do we want to be having not only within but outside of our community specifically and so you touched on a lot of different things um talking about a lot of belonging and before we dive into what's the missing piece of this conversation that you're currently partaking in you also talked just, you briefly touched on that moment in 2020 of like, what am I doing? Why am I here? And how do I, you know, where do I go from here? Um, can you tell us a little bit or elaborate on what it meant to have that reckoning moment, even though it's been built on, you know, the context of your own personal lived experience that not only had you say, okay, I need to do something di- or I need to do something new, but also I need to do something different different than what I was doing at that time, which was for anyone who might not know working within that nonprofit sector.
1: Sure. Um, you know, 2020 sparked a lot of movement, especially within white organizations to, uh, create space for some of these hard conversations around race equity and inclusion, which was great, but we all know that uh, (laughs) there's a lot of work to do there. And the approaches aren't always the best as well as intentioned as they are. Um, You know, I think we were all horrified, mortified watching George Floyd get murdered over and over and over and over again on TV. Um, It's so triggering in so many ways Um, for the Black community especially, Um, but I think for everybody watching that that cares about these issues in our country. And I lived in in Minneapolis for 10 years. So Mm -hmm. I built a career there, went to school there. So it hit home for me in a different way too. And we all know the pandemic was also happening in full force (laughs) at the same time. (laughs) Lots of AAPI hate, lots of uncertainty about our community and how we brought this supposed disease into these countries and you know our, our place in the whole like era of the pandemic.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I was working for a white-led nonprofit at the time where we were starting to have <clears throat> some of these conversations. And my my manager at the time, white woman. Uh, I started talking about my experiences with racism and how as an Asian American, it happens. Even here where I live in the Washington, D.C. area, it still happens. Uh, and I, she literally rolled her eyes at me mm. as I was talking on, you know, we're all on Zoom screens, <laughs> but literally rolled her eyes at me tried to be kind of subtle about it because I think it was a, a knee-jerk reaction for her. Mm. But I definitely saw it. And She I did was not talking- click
0: the, the video turn off screen button fast enough. No.
1: <laughs> no. Uh, I definitely saw it. And um, it was a conversation where I was talking about the constant code switching I had to do my entire Mm. life. And the code switching that was so confusing, because I didn't even know who I was, right? (laughs) In my mind, I was a white American. Yep. And, you know, I'm pretty ashamed of that, uh, that for so long, that's how I wanted to be seen and perceived that I had this steeped, internalized racism against myself, my community, and got very angry at people that Uh, would ask me about my Asian heritage. Mm. Very angry. And, you know, for a long time, I was able to, you know, pretend that I was okay with walking those two worlds. And, you know, code switching, I was talking a lot about, you know, as an Asian American, you know, we do everything we can, especially if you're an adopted Asian-American adopted by white parents and living in predominantly white communities, you are constantly thinking about, do I look white enough? Am I speaking white enough? Does my hair look white enough? Do my clothes reflect the white community Mm, that I want to emulate? Does my job reflect the white person that I want to be? And You know, there is definitely, I think, similarity and feeling between other minority communities like the black community. They think about code switching like that a lot as well. And, you know, for her, my white manager to roll her eyes in front of everybody, (laughs) it was an entire team, all team call at me talking about my experience like that. Uh, it, It just... That was definitely a moment where I was like, yeah, Uh, I knew Asian Americans. We were not a big part of this conversation. Mm -hmm. Just from the searching I had done, trying to find stories about our communities that reflected how I felt and how I wanted to be seen and talked about. But her doing that really, uh, it it was a moment for me where I, I really understood how far we were From being Mm -hmm. a true part of this conversation being taken seriously, uh, especially by the white community, when we're talking about race, when we're talking about exclusion, Mm. when we're talking about what identity means to us or a lack of identity, we all know that the model minority myth is so harmful. Um, And that is how a lot of Asian Americans or Americans in the corporate sector, the nonprofit sector, you name it, you Mm -hmm. know, we're operating in that way. And it's been so harmful to us for decades and decades. So that moment in time, uh, right after George Floyd's murder, that was when I knew I had to do something about how I felt.
0: Well, I really appreciate you sharing that and giving a little bit more context because I think the context is important, um, particularly for adoptees, but especially for people who are who don't know that experience and are just unaware of what how that affects us in our everyday lives. I think that's something I just talked about in my last ep- or a couple episodes ago was about how adoptee as an identity. And I think we've talked about this is not seen that way. It's seen as a, you know an act uh, of adoption and then it ends there, but. For us, the people who live that experience, like it continues to influence and affect us in our everyday lives. And when we start, we get to a point where we finally start to ask questions and talk about it differently. We get the eye roll. We get people who are like very skeptical. Well, you know, I know an adopted person, and they're totally fine. Like that's usually that's a mm-hmm. common response. I feel like I receive um, from folks who who have no awareness of of that experience. So I really appreciate you sharing that, and you know. It's it's interesting the, how similar a lot of our catalysts are and how different some of those things can be and the different ways that we end up navigating not only community, but the conversation itself. And so, again, kind of going back to belonging and talking about all of the different things that you've found yourself now involved in as you've moved through the community and embraced the community a little bit more, embraced your space within this community Um, what conversations do you feel like your, or what kind of things, I guess, to get at the ethos and the purpose of the show, do you feel like are missing from the conversations that you're currently having around the adoptee experience, maybe within the adoption adoptee former foster youth space? What do you think that missing piece is right now? Or what's something that you're focusing on and wanting to bring a little bit more light to?
1: Yeah, I think um, within the adoptee space, and like I said, I, I uh, ha- share the identity of of being a former foster youth, um, which is not really talked about sure. at all
0: <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> when we're talking yeah, it, about it, it, adoption. It's, for sure, for sure.
1: Yeah. And so, um, you know, I've had the opportunity to watch a lot of stories in real time because of how large my family Mm
2: -hmm. was,
1: my adoptive family was. um, And all of us, almost all of us came into our family through the foster care system. And I've had um, numerous conversations with people that identify um, with one or the other or both identities as well. And we talk, of course, a lot about how we feel very similar or have, uh, the shared experience of not feeling like we belong in either worlds where we, Mm. uh, either come from or live in. Yeah. And I think what's maybe not talked about as much and something really important to, I think, explore a little more as adoptees and former fosters Is how does the lack of our history, yes, but more so the lack of our um, personal networks. So let me let me back up a little bit. Sure. Most individuals that I know, they're born into a family, and there's this built-in network and community Mm -hmm. that that stays with them for for generations right we're we're passing down resources stories contacts and then of course wealth throughout Mm -hmm. the generations someone that comes from the foster care system or someone that is transracially adopted guess what we don't have any of that right
2: (laughs) a hundred percent we
1: might be born or I'm sorry adopted or placed into a home that has wealth or you know has a great community but it's not ours right and we're reminded every day that it's not ours right yes we're reminded by how we look um our change of name uh for me me for example my my birthday is unknown like we don't even know what mm. uh, what age we are some of us so you know it's we're just reminded all the time constantly like you don't have that history right you don't have that network you don't have that community you're literally borrowing or taking somebody else's as your own and guess what you're not always welcome to it <laughs> right. you're not you're not accepted into it because you literally haven't been born into it. So, you know, it's not yours by by birthright or, you know, however you want to phrase it. Sure. And that has a lasting impact. For me personally, I have felt that. A lot of uh especially foster youth that I know and have talked to over the years, they really feel that, especially mm-hmm. ones that are not placed into good homes or yep. ones that are yep. never permanently placed and mm-hmm. age out.
0: Mm -hmm. and
1: have to figure it out. Um, so what that means, and especially, uh, from my personal experience is there ends up being this pretty large opportunity gap when it comes to your professional opportunities and professional development. Um, no, You know, without going too deep into <laughs> all the stories and my story in particular, <laughs> you know, folks that don't get placed into good homes or don't have great relationships with their adopted parents or, um, you know, don't have the opportunity to be placed into families that are well off mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, get to live like that normal life and achieve the american dream you know we start our careers in fast food and retail and service we're yep. doing you know the grind of three to four jobs at a time going to community college not even going to college all of these things right. that pile up into a mass- massive loss of opportunity and loss of potential for folks like us that that don't have like this built-in network and support system. Right From the day of our birth. And when you have to do that by yourself and build a network by yourself, start from scratch, and also you're navigating that you don't accept yourself as who you are, you don't even know who you are, then how are you supposed to successfully build this professional life that you maybe you don't even know is possible because then you don't even see your story reflected out there. You can't see yourself out there in these positions or in these companies or, you know, these success stories that you see, they often don't reflect, uh, stories of folks that are coming out of the foster care system or adoptees that don't have great experiences. Right. And so People that have these types of experiences struggle for years or even decades achieving any kind of professional milestones that their peers achieve um, much sooner and faster than, than they can. So that's kind of you know, a part of the missing piece of the conversation that, sure. that I have experienced and seen.
0: I really appreciate you sharing that. And I thought of a lot of different things as you were going through this um, particular situation, uh, specifically that lack of not only your personal history, but this lack of networking. So the first thing I thought of was when you were describing it, like, was how transactional it feels. Like you said, mm-hmm. we we might, even for myself, you know, I can be adopted into a good situation. And I never really thought about it this way. But at the end of the day, like if I were to act out or if I were to be the different, you know, if I were in a way that was like like temperamentally and for whatever reason, like my adoptive family was like, nope, we don't want this kid or whatever, you know, that could be pulled away quickly. You know, they could pull the rug out from under you. The opportunity goes away like that. It's not just built in or ingrained. And I will say that I won't I, like, it's not like every single person, you know, but uh who is do not go through adoption has you know is able to take advantage of a network like that or whatever it might be but particularly from like this adoptee or foster youth former foster youth perspective it does feel like and plays into this systemic issues of these two different systems and how they are at their face transactional because the transactions don't stop at being adopted or at going through uh, the foster care system, you know that continues because we've seen the stories of children being rehomed or um, you know foster youth going through multiple placements and then still ending up aging out without any connection or support system from from anybody. And so it made me really think about the transactionality of these systems and how we oftentimes. Uh, or people outside of our community specifically, oftentimes will not even know that those transactions continue to happen. And then to your point about, uh, we don't have these models of adoptees or former fosters who have been able to climb the ladder, the corporate ladder, whatever it might be, and succeed and thrive and, and do all of these things. We don't really have those models. The only ones that we have are placed on such a high pedestal that they mm-hmm. are deemed exceptional to the rule essentially and then it's not even about oh well you're this person is adopted it's just like it goes to oh well they were asian they had to overcome the asianness part of it or they it, they really hone in on something and we leave out a lot of other things and it feels like if we could get away from some of that and we had this network of, of of people who had shown that we that it's possible to succeed but not only that that you don't have to go through that the rigors of trying to succeed that we can help you move forward in that way is something that's really important and i think it is it's a piece that's missing it's not even missing it's non-existent right now i don't think mm-hmm. that we're even thinking it like we're building small networks we are building large networks of adoptees and former foster youth Specifically, especially on social media. However, it's like, it's also like thinking about, oh, we, there are, there are more ways that we can go about doing this. So how do we, or what, in in your opinion, what do you think is something that we can do internally as adoptees as former foster youth to ensure that we are addressing this particular issue?
1: And when you say internally, what do you mean?
0: So I mean for, so, so essentially this is a two-part question. So essentially, how do we as adoptees and former foster youth, how do we make sure that we are addressing, you know, this lack of network, this lack of opportunity um, ourselves? And then the second part of that question is how do we ensure um, or how do people outside of our communities ensure that they are addressing this as well?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think within our communities, um, there are so many, as you've experienced in your journey these past three years, so many of us that uh, are not sharing our stories. Mm. We're not talking about it. A lot of that may be, um, and obviously I'm not speaking for anybody else, but for me personally, um, there was a lot of fear behind sharing the story. Sure. You don't... (laughs) You don't want to call out uh, how much more different you are uh, by sharing this really, you know, unique story about who you are, your feelings of lack of identity and belonging, right? That's not what's seen as, like, uh, cool and mainstream in white mm-hmm. society, right? What's cool and mainstream in white society are... Asian Americans that are fortune five hundred executives or celebrities or have started these amazing you know highly successful nonprofits mm-hmm.
2: uh
1: the the journalists the the athletes whatever um, and so then coming out and saying, well actually uh, I, you know I'm an adoptee, and I'm still like figuring this out. I'm trying to figure out where I fit in into these two worlds that i straddle sometimes three worlds that's that's not it doesn't give an asian american a lot of confidence right sure. that they're they're going to be even more accepted into society once they share that it's right. scary very scary so i think internally in our community one step is literally just what what you're doing, what the John Chi show is doing, what, you know, a lot of folks that I see now are doing is creating these spaces for storytelling.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So critical. Normalizing it. Mm. I forget which guest you had on, but they said just doing it is normalizing it. Something yep. like that, which is so true. The more we see, the more we hear, the more normalized it becomes and we have to start with ourselves, our own community, giving each other the space for that. Um, because that, this kind of storytelling is um, – it, it takes – sometimes it takes a while for it to come out. Right. Uh, it's it, A lot of people share in, in very small steps. And then, and then sure. you piece, piece it together and it becomes this this comprehensive narrative of – you know, yeah, this is why our communities struggle. And so, you know, I think internally that's, that's one piece of it.
0: Love it. Um, and, oh, go ahead.
1: No, I was going to say, you know, externally, you know, I, I think we have talked about it um, within the Asian American community is, you know, externally really advocating and fighting for resources to be, mm invested into things that our community is striving to do to build to narrative change all of that um i think you might know the statistic better than i do but what percent is invested into the aapi community and philanthropy dollars not a lot it's like it's Small, like, small percentages.
0: Yeah, I uh, wanted to say one percent, but I think it's like point one. So
1: I, I think it's I think it's less than one percent. And yeah, I, have I think to, it's
0: like point one, point two. Uh, we'll I know f- I just saw a study come out that. about that, but um, <laughs> yeah, I think TAF uh, Asian American Foundation just put out a study about that. But yeah, it's it's not it's again almost non-existent.
1: <laughs> it's almost non-existent. And that's just the nonprofit space. Exactly. And, and what about, you know, the corporate spaces, the small business spaces? You know, there's so many more areas uh, that Asian Americans are within where we're trying to build our voice, but there's just such a lack of resources for us to be able to break these barriers. And it's it's difficult, right? Because there's a lot of... um There's a lot of people of color of all different groups Mm -hmm. and that represent many, many different aspects that we should be highlighting and supporting. And, you know, it's, it's really a shame that we all have to fight each other for these resources (laughs) against, you know.
0: So I actually want to just, jump in really quickly and say i don't necessarily think we're fighting each other it's more so that we've been pitted against each other because we've been led to believe that there are only so many resources to go around and so like we've been talking about the scarcity mindset a lot and, and the apam conversations last month um and i think you've mentioned it a lot here without saying it specifically but like this idea that there is only so much for us um, and then that way only so many of us can get it or succeed or or whatever the case might be makes it feel like we have to fight with other groups and not even like not even across racial uh, or ethnicity but even internally like, fighting for LGBTQ resources within our own Asian American diaspora, fighting for adoptee representation within the Asian diaspora, fighting for disability justice within the Asian diaspora itself. And we find ourselves like fighting each other for that stuff even. And it's like, well, hold on a second. Why are we doing that? And why is it that like 10 people own the 99% of all the wealth? Like, doesn't that sound, it seems off in, in, in the grand scheme of things. And so, I didn't want to. I didn't want to necessarily cut you off, but I wanted to like just interject with that because I feel like we've been kind of skirting around the outsides of what it means to operate within a a society that preaches scarcity as opposed to abundance.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right.
0: Well, I think especially because you come from. The nonprofit sector where fundraising is key to literally making the whole operation go and you know that you i mean i don't know that you know this but i would assume that you've seen like big donors and stuff throw money at different causes at different organizations at different things um without a second thought it's only because it's like oh because there's a fundraiser going on okay here we go and it's like well there's and then there's other areas that that could probably be distributed a little bit more equitably.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you know, the institutional funders, um, the true wealthy—you know, billionaires, millionaires—there is definitely uh, like a pattern mm. of their giving. And you're right. I, I mean, I've seen it for a, for the past decade. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's because of the narrative stories and networks that they share. Mm. And guess who's excluded from that? The AAPI community.
0: And here and- we are full circle, bringing it <laughs> right. back.
1: Amongst yeah. others. Yeah. Right,
0: right, 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 right. The
1: indigenous community. There, there's quite a few others that are also excluded from yeah. those conversations, from those rooms, from those networks. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of work to do. And I think, again, going back to your question from the outside, what can the outside do? Yes, resources, but also how are you helping to elevate our narratives? Right. How are you helping to create visibility for people to even be interested in what mm. we're building and what we're doing? Because often I I feel like, you know, we saw this at the Oscars, right? These amazing AAPI actors are recognized for decades of work that they're doing. Where was everyone forty years when Michelle Yeoh's career started? Exactly. Like, you know, we were put in this like little bucket, pushed off to the side. We're like this is the AAPI room, right? <laughs> this is where they're visible. That's that's good. Fine. And so, you know, as if you're a person outside of the AAPI community and you want to be an ally, start taking us out of those buckets, start opening those doors, start inviting us into these rooms. Um, and, you know, one thing I really struggled with <clears throat> in the nonprofit sector was um, really s- seeing firsthand how, you know, our community is excluded from those leadership positions, Mm. excluded from being in the room where those decisions, pivotal decisions for organizations are made, um, excluded from those board positions, all of that, uh, it's, it's a shame because we are so much a part of the American society. Mm. We contribute so much. And, you know, it's time to start taking us out of these little buckets that you've put us into and start helping us shape the world that we all want. We all want equity inclusion. We Mm -hmm. want racial justice. We all want it. Let us help build it too. Right. So, um, you know, it will start with opening doors visibility inclusion in conversations giving equal opportunity for for funding opportunity
0: mm, yep not
1: not not just not don't hand us the dollars right Give us the opportunity to ask for them,
0: (laughs) right? (laughs) To make our case for them. We can't even. We're not even pitching it. We don't just want the check. Like, sure, we'll take your money, but like, we want the opportunity to be able to show you why it's important for you to invest in something like this, whatever it might be. And so, I really uh, thank you for sharing that because you said something that is really going to stick with me. And really quickly, just jumping back five seconds. the the guest you're referencing is from last month was Rick Allen. And he said to continue oh. is to normalize. And that thing has been just just beating my brain over and over again uh, since we had that conversation. And now you've shared a gem that I'm gonna be carrying with me all through June. You said, How are to specifically talking to you folks outside of our community, how are you creating visibility for people to even be interested, even have the opportunity to be interested in our community. How are you creating that visibility? I think that is such a core, core question that we should all be asking ourselves even internally um, when it comes to like just building solidarity, understanding, building empathy for other groups. You know, we need to be asking that question to ourselves, but especially, you know, for coming outside of our community, how are you creating that visibility um, so that people even have the opportunity to develop, gain interest, to develop that understanding and empathy. So thank you for sharing that. Um, As we get ready to wind down here, uh, you've dropped a lot of gems in a really short time. And I can't wait to be able to share this with everyone so that they can learn from you. And I can't wait to have you on the John C. Show. We can learn more about your personal story. (laughs) But for you right now, who are you learning from? Who or what organizations or what what sort of things are you learning from right now uh, that have you really inspired, really excited about this work?
1: Oh, gosh. It's not... (laughs) (laughs) It's it's not one particular person. Sure. I think you know I've been so inspired by uh, the many AAPI community members that are being extremely brave and building what they believe in. Mm. Really, having taken that leap for themselves to amplify and elevate their communities there's so many
0: (laughs) there really is uh,
1: you know i i i think you've you've shared quite a few of them as your guests over these past few months there's been quite a few that's been on that have been on the john chi show um you know there's if you look up creators in the aapi space you're going to find them But not just creators of the AAPI space, but look like you said, look up disability justice advocates, look Mm. up LGBTQIA advocates, look up foster care advocates. You know, there's so many folks in our communities and allies for our communities that are that have put their money where their mouth is essentially and, and are building something. And I have taken inspiration from everybody. That has been brave enough to speak out for us, because it has taken me a long time to do the same publicly. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm really proud too if I can share that I'm I'm joining <laughs> in this community yes. as a builder, a, as a creator. And so, I I can't wait to further develop um, what I have named the inclusion initiative. Yes. And I'm building the Inclusion Network, and it's a network specifically for transracial adoptees and former foster youth. It's a professional network and platform. And Patrick, I've I've bugged you to be a part of it yeah. too, so <laughs> we'll, we will continue those conversations as I continue to build what this is. But the whole purpose of this network and platform is to close this opportunity gap that I've been talking about for us to help each other and close this opportunity back or opportunity gap when are we going to meet celebrities like Michelle Yeoh who's going to then invest in us mm, not a lot of us right <laughs> so there are so many in our communities that within these identities where we literally under we just understand each other right there's a lot of nuances that mm-hmm. we don't have to explain as professionals when we're right. in these spaces of this is why I am the way I am this is what I struggle with there are, you know, adoptees, former foster youth are going to understand that about you inherently without all of that backstory that you have to explain over and over again to somebody else that doesn't have that experience. So there's so many in, in these networks, um, I'm sorry, with folks that have these identities that have overcome so much, have built amazing careers. We don't know about them though. We don't know where to find them. Young professionals or mm. people still in high school or college that are trying to figure out what their opportunities are, what their potential is. Right. How do they even find those individuals that can support them in such a deep way because of those shared experiences? So there's nothing like it out there yet. And that, that is what I'm building. I'm so excited to have you be a part of it and hopefully many other collaborators and um the inspiration for that literally was people like you, all the creators that have been brave to build these platforms and and build these things that inspire all of us every day for those of us that haven't been seen yet, you're helping us be seen in the world. and um, so I, I'm building a a professional network to kind of capture that in real time and help help everyone find each other so i'm very excited about that
0: well i really really appreciate that and i'm excited to be a part of it too i'm excited to just follow along on your journey as you go through this because you know when we first talked we talked about you know like okay there's linkedin for professionals but like where is the space for us so we can actually like locate us and um I, it just like hadn't even, hadn't even crossed my mind that we should be building that particular database as opposed to just like, oh, I'll just be on LinkedIn and like I'll have Adoptee in my headline and like that's how people will find me. Like, (laughs) just type it in. Hopefully you come across me. But you're right. Like, people, especially who have these lived experiences who are, who are young, who are already asking good questions, but also still like we're still, like you said, a ways away from having that network. Of like, okay, when I look here, who do I see that reflects my lived experience? Doesn't just necessarily look like me, but in that deeper context, like reflects that lived experience of what I've went through and there isn't anything like it. So the inclusion initiative, super, super excited about it. Um, I appreciate you sharing because I was, that's literally the last question is how do we support you? So how do we support... (laughs) You, Grace, as an individual, and how do we support the inclusion initiative going forward?
1: Yes. Well, you can um, support me in a lot of ways. Um, I think the main area of support that I'm looking for right now really is to help uh, be connected Mm. to folks that have these identities you know, either as a transracial adoptee or as a former foster person or both. And uh, I I really want to have more conversations with these folks to understand what this platform should look like from our perspective. There's so many different experiences and stories um, of every individual that has these identities. None of our stories are the same. And, you know, from being in the nonprofit sector for the past 10 years, I have seen organizations built and run in ways that those in power and those with wealth and influence think they should be built and run to serve communities. And guess what? It's often not what the communities actually need or want. And they were never asked what they needed Mm. and wanted. And so, you know, I think it's really important as creators that we don't do that, nope. that we are asking the questions. We're building the things that are actually needed and that will be supportive for the communities that we're building it for. So I really want to be connected to folks like that and have those conversations. I want to be connected with people that are interested in collaborating with me on this platform for storytelling, for Elevating individuals on the platform um, for sponsorship, all of that kind of stuff. So, those are really the main ways that I'm looking to be supported right now. And um, I think you'll have my my website on, on your show notes. So, yeah,
0: definitely. So, uh, where can <laughs> what? So, if you don't mind, just sharing what that website is and how people can follow and get a hold of you uh, if they want to connect.
1: Yeah, right now LinkedIn is going to be the main way to follow me and connect with me. Um, and you can visit my website at graceyoungfoster.com. You can sign up to be added to my uh, my list for, the, for folks that want to learn more about the inclusion initiative as it launches.
0: Amazing. Um, folks, if you're listening right now, go ahead and follow and connect with Grace on LinkedIn. And then go ahead and sign up for that inclusion initiative list. Uh, Cannot say how... I mean, you take the words right out of my mouth, essentially, when it comes to what do we do and how do we build programming. It's we got to talk to the people who have those experiences who are going to be affected by what the program is, what the organization is, whatever it is. And too many times, like you said, we just take the money and run. We don't listen. We just do. And we assume that we're doing good because... 10 people over here might say we're doing good and but the people that we're impacting the hundreds of thousands of people who on the other side you know aren't aren't receiving the kind of care the kind of help the kind of support that they need so very 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 excited to follow along on this journey of yours personally and with the inclusion initiative folks make sure that you are following along with us as well because you're not going to want to be left behind when these things come even though I just said that I know that this is something that is deliberately specifically for not leaving people behind so even (laughs) if you miss it first wave you won't be left behind but don't miss it Uh, this is something that's really important for our community for all communities really as we continue to move forward and look for those new ways of progression so Thank you so much again, Grace, for giving me your time, giving us your knowledge and wisdom and sharing so much of your story here. Um, I honestly feel like we didn't talk enough. I cannot wait to have you on the John C. Show to be able to share more of your personal journey Um, and just very, very privileged and honored to be able to have you on the show. So thank you so much.
1: It's an honor to be here, Patrick. Thank you.
0: You are very welcome. It is my honor as well to have you here. Everybody listening, we already talked about it, but you can find everything that Grace and I just talked about in the show notes down here. And you can also find us on Instagram at conversationpodpiece. If you are feeling inclined to leave us a rating or review on whatever podcast player you're currently listening to this on, that would be greatly appreciated as well. And if you're interested in supporting our show in the future or anytime, feel free to hop in my DMs or visit my personal website, patrickintheworld.me. So folks, until next time, I am Patrick Armstrong, and this has been Conversation Peace. Thanks, Grace.
1: Thanks, Patrick.